Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, um, today I want to speak from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and we're going to talk about how to pray for growing Christians. Uh, because that's exactly where the text takes us. So just let me pray for all of us now. Lord, we just pray right now that you would bless our time together, that your word would go out, be fruitful as you've intended it, uh, that we all might uh, come to know you better and to reflect you better in our lives and especially in our prayer lives. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me read the passage. It it goes, uh, these three uh, verses, say, and the Lord, I pray, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. As usual, Paul packs a lot into uh, a very short amount of space and very few words. So we're just going to look at that passage there because it's a common theme is praying Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Now, when we began our study in the Philippians, we found that it was a church that Paul seemed to be very happy with, and he gave thanks for them in his opening words. And he thanked for their, he was thankful for their uh, fellowship, for their contribution to his ministry. And now he's telling how he prays for them. And that's what we want to look at today. Now, as Christians, we are supposed to grow. That would be normal. And in order to do that, sometimes it requires uh, not only our prayers, but the prayers of other people. Uh, I think this leads us to believe. Uh, Growth is good, but random growth is not necessarily helpful or good. Think of a vine in your garden that is left untended, and it just grows wherever it wants to, sometimes interferes with others or does things that would not be healthy for itself. So gardening teaches teaches us that growth is good, but directed growth is best. And Paul is talking to the Philippians who are growing in the Lord, but he wants to be sure that their growth is directed in the right direction. And he wants to do that so they, like a vine, sticking with that illustration, so that they would be also fruitful. Um, they have to grow somewhere in some direction in order to be fruitful. You can imagine somebody, somebody like a civil engineer who's, or a city engineer who's planning out the roads for a city. They have to make sense. They have to go somewhere. They can't be random and uh, like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, and so, so it is with the Christian life. We know that we're supposed to be growing, and we are, I believe. Um, but what direction are we growing uh, what is the goal and in- intention that God has for our growth? Um, it helps to get direction from others in what we're doing. Like I was setting up uh, an electronic device this week, trying to extend the range of my Wi-Fi to the other side of the house. It's called an extender, and uh, I could not figure it out for the first hour and until I called somebody who was on the other side of the world <laughs> and spoke with an accent. And they walked me through the process, directed me, And I was able to get it to work, in other words, because of the direction I was fruitful. So sometimes it takes help from others. 
what should we be growing towards? Well, some people think that the ultimate in Christian growth might be to become a missionary, to become a pastor, to go to seminary, or have a certain mystical experience. But we'll see that's not what Paul had in mind when he talked about the growth of the Philippians and what he what he had in mind, what he thinks God had in mind for them. So it wasn't just a, a status. It wasn't just their knowledge um, or an experience, um, but other virtues that he's going to talk about. So Paul did have a target in mind. The Philippians were doing well, but Paul wanted more for them, and he wanted them to increase in their unity and in their fruitfulness. And so the prayer that he prays for them is a good prayer that we can use as a model for praying for other growing Christians. And hopefully, I would suggest a, a model. I hope to remember the, to ask people to pray this way for me as well, because it really hits at some of the great needs that we have spiritually. So how do we pray for growing Christians? And there's kind of three strands I see here in the passage, the first coming out of verse 9. And uh, that's where he talks about love, and we should pray for increasing love. He says he's praying that their love may abound still more and more. Uh, we could all use more love. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. And in fact, uh, in the book of Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church to make it their chief pursuit above all things, you know, pursue that which is more excellent. And he's talking about love and devotes a whole chapter to talk about that. And he wants their love to abound. The word abound has the idea of uh, being more than enough, overflowing. And of course, the ultimate example of that is God's love for us, which, which we could say overflowed from heaven to us by his grace and um, provided Jesus Christ for us as our Savior. So he's talking about here, and he uses the word agape for love, which is unconditional um, love, the kind of love that God has for us, kind of love that Christians should have for one another, and the word that uh, Christianity made more popular. Agape love is, a, is not a self-serving love, but a love that's centered in other people. So he wants that love to be overflowing, and he prays that it just would grow more and more. Love always has room to grow more. I think that's true of all, for all of our lives. But he wants it to be a love that's knowledgeable. Look what he says, bound more and more in knowledge. Um, so it's not just a, a sentimental, emotional a superficial love, but it's a love according to knowledge. You and I know that the more we know someone, or if we use God as an example, the more we know God, uh, the more we can appreciate him and learn to love him because we learn more about his love for us. I think that's why the scriptures direct us in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to know God better, we, we um, can love him more. And it's true that when we, I believe, know other people better, we love them more. The word knowledge that he uses here is the more intensive form of the word, um, epigonosco, to know fully or to know completely, um, to know exactly. So it's not a superficial knowledge either, just an intellectual knowledge, but it's really to know something a little bit more intimately. And um, that's true that when we get acquainted with God and other people, it increases our understanding of their backgrounds uh, that help us love them. We might understand better their motives, um, maybe the problems that they're having in life that helps us 
to love them better and be, maybe be less judgmental, judgmental and critical of them. Um, I call, had to call somebody on the phone about an issue and, uh, um, and I was as nice as I could, polite as I could be because I've never met the fellow. And immediately he was very nasty and rude with me, yelling at me on the phone. And I don't understand why. And of course, it made me angry at first. But uh, after hanging up, I got to thinking, this guy must have a bad day or a bad life or something's going on with him. So let's just withhold judgment for now until we know more. And it's that kind of knowledge that helps us to be more patient and loving with people. And I think that's why it's important to spend time with the, those that we uh, should be loving, uh, like with God, for example. Spending time in his word, getting to know him uh, through our devotional life is very important and develops that love relationship with him. And that's why spending time with other Christians is important, too. It's hard to love people that we don't really know, that we don't understand, and we don't understand their motives, their backgrounds, can't appreciate them like we should can't love them like we should. It makes a big difference when we understand what somebody's going through and we can uh, look at their lives, maybe wear their shoes for a little while and help us to love them a little bit more. And that's why I think it's important for a group of Christians, like in a church, to have socials and uh, what we call usually call fellowships um, or maybe picnics together, retreats together, uh, meet in one another's homes. It's just It's the same thing that's true with your your family, the more time you spend with them, the more time you get to know them as well. When Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, husbands live with understanding with your wives. Um, he's talking about living with uh, a knowledge of them uh, so that you can understand them better and love them better. So knowledge is a very important part of loving someone better. The more we know about them, the more we can love them. He uses another word here uh, when he talks about their love growing and growing uh, he uses the word knowledge, but he also uses the word discernment. And that word discernment has the idea of a moral perception or understanding. Discernment is something that comes with uh, maturity. And it's a, when you think about discernment, it's the ability to distinguish and detect differences. Uh, so someone who is mature can discern differences. For example, a child might see a bird and he says bird and as he grows older he learns that bird is a duck and as he continues to grow older he learns that duck is a mallard duck and if he continues to grow in his knowledge he'll be able to just discern that that is a hen mallard duck so discernment takes us down to a finer knowledge of things the ability to see distinctions. And it comes with growth and maturity and experience. We need to love with knowledge and that when we're, the more we know, the more we can discern uh, what people's real needs are. We can discern what people's real motives are. We can discern uh, how we should respond to them in a relationship with uh, gentleness or with uh, sternness or with silence or with uh, more words or with words of encouragement or uh, with discipline. There's all different kinds of things, but it takes discernment to have the wisdom, know what to do. You can apply that to how you love your own children or your parents or your wife or your spouse or uh, anyone, anybody that's continually around you. Uh, there are certain times for certain words. 
in certain times to love them in a certain way, but it takes discernment to understand that. I don't know if you've read the book or remember uh, a book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And in that book, he talks about people respond to different kinds of love languages. I know one of them is like quality time. Another is uh, giving someone gifts. Another is encouraging words. Um, and then there's um, uh, proper touch and acts of service. And he's talking about it in the context of marriage that we should learn the love language for our spouse and what they appreciate the most. Um, so it's that kind of discernment that we're talking about. What is needed for that person at that time and uh, given all that we know about them. So it's not a sentimental, emotional type of love that he's praying for these Philippians, but it's a knowledgeable, discerning type of love that he wants to in, wants to see increase more and more in them. So when we begin to pray for others, pray for an increasing love in their life. And then uh, a second thing in verse 10, I think, is kind of a result of verse 9, but goes along with it. Uh, it's pray for authentic character. That's the way I'll put it. Um, and there's three aspects that he mentions here. Uh, he says, first of all, in verse 10, um, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So the ability to discern leads to approving the things that are excellent. Um, the word approve there is the word that means to prove by testing. Um, Dakimas was used, uh, for example, of testing metals to see if they were pure. And uh, so it's not just uh, uh, acceptance of anything that comes along, but approving that which is the best. Uh, some translations say the things which differ. Uh, I think that the point is here is that when comparatively speaking, we choose to do the better thing or the superior things, the things that really matter. Um, not just good things, but the best things. So he's not praying here for them uh, as a matter of doing right and wrong, but he wants the very best for them and wants them to do that which is the very best. Uh, so sometimes the good, you agree, can be the enemy of the best. We settle for what is good instead of doing what is best. And um, many times uh, in our efforts to do good and be good, um, uh, we, we get sidetracked and there's so many distractions in our Christian lives. We can get distracted by things that are good, but not necessarily the best traditions that are good, but uh, may not be the best traditions to have uh, doctrines that are good and, but may not be the most important ones. Um, or, Sometimes we're dogmatic about things that the scriptures uh, leave a little bit more open. So there are many things that can keep us from doing and choosing that which is the best. We're to discern the best and settle for nothing less. And that would not just be in Christian, in church issues, but in lifestyle issues and uh, music we listen to, the shows that we watch, uh, the people that we hang with, and, and those kinds of things. Paul is praying that they would uh, approve the things that are excellent. And that he, then he says that you may be sincere. Um, that word sincere 
uh, has the idea of something that is tested by the sun. Uh, in other words, it holds up under a direct spotlight and shows to be true and authentic. Um, it's judged in the light. Your car may look clean in a dark garage, but when you pull it out into the sunlight, you may see a lot of dirt that you didn't see before. And here, when he prays that uh, for that um, in our discernment of things and our approval of things, or we would be sincere. He's talking about being unadulterated, authentic. Uh, we would maybe use the term no hypocrisy, not hypocritical at all. Uh, I think this in implies that we should be who we say we are. Our character should match uh, our words and our deeds. And um, it means that people should get to know us as we are and not a phony uh, avatar, if you know, if you get what I'm saying, and not a phony avatar of who we are or a symbol of who we are, but who we really are. Let them know sometimes our, our faults and our cracks uh, in our character. But tell the people truth in love. Um, be sincere. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine is the typical answer. Um, but sometimes just trying, try saying, uh, well, you really want to know? And telling them the truth about uh, some kind of situation or concern that you might have. So tell the people, tell people truth and love and uh, be authentic in who you are. Um, tell, tell people what they need to hear sometimes uh, if you're sincere, not just what they want to hear or what's easy for you to say. Sometimes people really do need to hear the truth if they're going to grow in the right direction. Look at Paul's letters to the churches and how sin sincere he is and talking about some of their faults, even though it's difficult for him to do so. Now, in the springtime, I normally coach pole vaulting, although the track season this year was completely canceled. So I only, I didn't do any coaching at all. I think I did two days of coaching. But uh, I remember a track meet, for example, last year, um, and I was coaching uh, a couple competitors, and one of my gals uh, vaulted, and Everybody was saying, and she missed, and everybody was saying, well, no, she, actually, she made it. And everybody was saying, oh, great vault, great vault. And uh, I pulled her aside, aside, and I said, look, everybody's telling you it was a great vault, but it wasn't. Here's what you did wrong, and here's what, here's what you could do better. I know you can do better. So I gave her encouraging words, but I had to be honest with her if I wanted to see her improve. And uh, so Paul's, Paul coaches, I think, in the same way. He does it in a loving, gentle way uh, with a goal in mind, but he tells them the truth in love. So to be sincere means that we, we're showing a pure, unsoiled love uh, towards others. Uh, our motives are good. Uh, we don't, we're not loving them because uh, they're doing something for us, but we're sincerely loving them because Christ loved them. He told us to love them, and we know who they are and what their needs are. Then he says one other thing in verse 10 that um, uh, he says, uh, till and without offense, till the day of Christ. So uh, we're praying for authentic character that would be without offense. Um, in other words, Paul wants them to have nothing that would harm or hinder others. Uh, a mature love gives up things that would hurt other people or doesn't do or say things that would hurt other people, even though that person may have the right, um, the moral right, personal right to do something or say something. Uh, as we saw uh, in other passages in 
Paul's literature, he gave up rights, like in First Corinthians 9, he gave up rights, monetary rights, for example, uh, so that he wouldn't be of any offense to the people in Corinth, and they could not accuse him of poor motives for being with him. So lacking offense meaning means that we not just do wrong, not do wrong towards people, but we sometimes don't do what we have the right to do just so as not to be offensive to them in the words we use and the, and the conduct and actions that we display towards them. Uh, we don't show any offense. And I love it. I love the way he brings in the judgment seat of Christ here as a motivation till the day of Christ obviously speaks, I believe of the time of our rapture and uh, the judgment seat of Christ that follows. It's a reminder of the judgment seat of Christ that follows after that time. And it's amazing to me how Paul so often uses the judgment seat of Christ throughout his literature, as, as Jesus did in his ministry. And uh, it's just a pervasive doctrine in, in all of the New Testament, and yet it is, sadly it's ignored by so many Christians, not taught by so many Christians, and yet it's always there in the background as a reminder and a motivator of how we should live our lives. And here we're to live without offense because those offenses will affect our um, evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ when Christ returns, or we go to be with him. So I love that little reminder there um, about the day of Christ. So we're, he's praying for their love to grow and abound. He's praying for authentic character. And then in verse 11, he's praying for them to be fruitful. And uh, uh, verse 11 is kind of a co-result of, I think, of what happens with the uh, with, along with what happens in verses uh, 9 and 10. If your love increases, your discernment grows, your knowledge grows, and uh, you approve of good things, you'll, will, you will become more fruitful. And so he talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness. He wants Christians to be fruitful, the Philippians Christians, and God would want all of us to be fruitful. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he wants all of us to do good works, and that's part of being fruitful. I think when he says filled with righteousness, righteousness here speaks of um, good works or um, uh, not our, not our uh, legal standing before God as righteous, but um, our righteous lifestyles and uh, the deeds that we do. And so the fruit should be uh, righteous deeds that we do. And he's wanting them that to uh, come from their lives as well. And the source of that, he reminds us, is Jesus Christ himself, which are by Christ, by Jesus Christ. So the source of fruitfulness is Jesus Christ. And we could go into a whole other message about that, as you know from um, John chapter 15, that if we're to be fruitful, we're to, to abide in the vine, and his word abides in us. So in that close abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, we produce more fruit. That's what John 15 is all about. And there's a reminder here from Paul uh, that the fruits of righteousness are by Christ or Jesus Christ. And then he says the end of that is to the joy and the praise of God. So the result of the fruitfulness in our life is that it brings God glory and praise. And, and in the end, that's really what uh, God desires and what Paul desires for us. I like how Paul, instead of starting out with that, uh, leads us to that end, and he kind of builds up to that a climactic goal of our Christian 
life and character and fruitfulness is to bring praise and glory to God. It helps us understand, I think, what kind of works he's talking about, the kind of works that glorify God. And I'm kind of glad that he says it this way because, you know, there's a lot of controversy about, about good works in the Christian life and whether they prove our salvation or not. And yet here we see that good works are by Jesus Christ and they're for the glory of God. So it's not just an arbitrary good deed that is done, but it's something that I like to call a good work, something done in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That kind of gives us a little definition of the kind of work he's talking about. Uh, not just something good done for good's sake, but something done good for God's sake. So um, he's praying for fruit then for God's glory. You know, I was, I was thinking this morning, and uh, perhaps you, you two have joined in this prayer that you'd pray that the, the coronavirus uh, would cease um, around the world. First, I want to pray that it ceases in, in our area and then, I, and then in America, but then I happen to know so many suffering in other parts of the world just to get their next meal because of it. And so uh, my prayer always ends up expanding to the whole world. Um, it's almost as if I was having a conversation with God today, and as I prayed for the coronavirus to cease, it's as if he said, why? <laughs> and, uh, well, because, God, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to serve you better. and and in Africa this summer and so forth, he said, aren't you serving me now? Uh, yeah, I guess I am God, but maybe in a different way. And, and it's almost as if he said, why do you want the coronavirus to cease so that the world can go on, go on uh, disrespecting me and doing its own thing and sinning? Um, what would really be the point of it? Uh, I, think, I think the answer to my prayer is no answer. And the answer to my prayer maybe is that... Uh, God is in control. He knows what he's doing. He knows what brings the most glory to himself. And, uh, and that's what he's going to do. Maybe he's going to do it until we learn just exactly that, that he is in control and uh, he is in charge of things and that we are finite. So even in our prayers, prayers for others, we can't try to second guess God and his purposes, but pray according to his will. So, Paul is praying for the Philippians, and it's a good model of how we should pray for other Christians, and uh, perhaps other Christians uh, should adopt in praying for us as well. Uh, when people say, what should you pray for? I usually take a shortcut kind of answer, and I say, well, pray for the three Ps, for God's protection, for God's provision, and for God's power. I say that because it's easy to remember, and it is true. I do want those things. It's a little harder to express kind of things that Paul is saying here. Uh, but I, what I would really like to ask you and others to pray for me is that my love would be uh, just filled to overflowing um, as I grow my knowledge of God and other people, and that I would be more discerning in, uh, in what I do and what I say and all the decisions that I make, that um, I, and there, I might therefore be more sincere and honest and live a life uh, without offense before God so that he, in the end, is glorified. It's a little harder to say that. That's a mouthful. Um, but when you pray the three Ps, you can pray for those things. I certainly wouldn't mind that. And I'll try to remember to pray those things for you as well. I think we all agree that we could all love more. Has anyone here reached peak of their love capacity? I don't think so. 
Uh, is anyone here living a completely blameless character, uh, authentic life? I don't think so. Um, has anyone here reached their peak of fruitfulness and service to God and in your Christian life? Again, I don't think so. So we all have room to grow in these areas. Uh, pray for me that way. Uh, pray for yourself that way. Pray for others, family members, missionaries, uh, leaders in the church. Uh, I think we'd all appreciate that kind of prayer. Just for more love, more discernment, more knowledge, more authentic character, um, to be without offense and uh, to live the kind of life that would bring honor and glory to God. And of course, um, any who don't know Christ, uh, this kind of prayer would be pretty meaningless to them. What they need to do is believe in him as Savior. And the only prayer God wants to hear from them is, Lord, thank you for the gift of eternal life. So that's uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And let me just have a word of prayer. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.